Welcome to the history of networking, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Today, we are talking to Larry Landweber about the history of CSNet. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, hello, Larry. Hello, Donald. So, Larry, you have long experience in the internet, and you just told us you were working on a book in this area in history of, of, of the internet, which will be really cool. Looking forward to seeing that come out. And today we are talking about the history of the CSNet. So why don't we start by telling people what CSNet is, or was when it was there, and then let's talk about how it developed and stuff like that. Okay, so I think we have to begin by putting ourselves back into the world of 1979. So in 1979, there was the ARPANET, and there were perhaps 20 or 30 organizations, including some universities that were connected to the ARPANET, and faculty and students at those institutions were able to use email, share share, uh, resources, transfer files. But for the great majority of people, even in computer science, faculty and students, even in computer science in the United States, there was no available networking. Now, back two years before, in 1977, I had done a project called TheoryNet, where we put together an email system to be used by theoretical computer scientists using a, actually a UNIVAC uh, central mail server. And for the theoreticians involved, there were perhaps 40 or 50 of them, uh, a large part of the theory community in the United States. The people had never used email before. And that was an experience, teaching them the, how to use email, what it was about, having them understand the uh, TI-745s that we distributed. Okay, as a result of that, I'd, over, the, over the next couple of years, I was department chair at the University of Wisconsin, and I made an attempt to get us connected to the ARPANET, but was not successful. We didn't have enough DARPA or DOE contracts. And I had colleagues at a variety of other schools, um, for instance, um, Purdue, even Berkeley, um, let's see, who else was there, Georgia Tech. We had about, oh, maybe 10, 10 schools, University of Washington, And none of these had network access for its students or faculty. So in uh, in spring of 1979, I just decided we'd have a meeting to talk about how do we get a network for computer science. Remember, TheoryNet was theoreticians, and it was just a central email system. But what we wanted was the ability to have resource, have services analogous to what was on the ARPANET for the entire computer science research community. And that included uh, people in industry and universities as well as government. So we we had this meeting in Madison and um, Bob Kahn came from DARPA and Kent Curtis, one of the real unsung heroes came from the NSF. And uh, the idea of the meeting was to talk about how do we plan a network? And Bob was very, forthright, he said, don't do it. Um, I will go and I will put all of you and others in computer science on the ARPANET, and there's no need for another network. 
Of course, very soon afterwards, Bob got back to DARPA and uh, realized the, uh, he, the money was not available. He was expecting NSF was going to pay for it. And I think it was something like $130,000 a year to, uh, to get an ARPANET imp and the connections. And so that basically was not feasible for any reasonable portion of the computer science community. So we got the, the, uh, the 10 universities got together and we wrote a proposal. Now, one thing that I think people don't understand today was that the internet was not, was not a top contender in 1979. Um, when we wrote the first proposal, we had one of the people at Utah was building, it, building an X.25 interface. And so we essentially based the uh, project on X.25. And uh, we had uh, about a dozen universities. We had uh, people from other universities around the country uh, joining in and uh, asking to be partners to this. So we submitted a proposal to NSF which, as I said, was based on using X.25. X.25 was available. There were a number of national providers, uh, Telenet, Larry Roberts's company, TimeNet, were providing X.25 services, and that just seemed like the appropriate way to go. So the proposal was submitted sometime in fall of uh, 1979. And again, this was for the entire computer science community, and we had support from, at that point, we submitted probably 20 or 30 uh, major universities, mainly the ones that were not on ARPANET. The ones on ARPANET sort of stood on the side. Well, the proposal was resoundingly rejected, okay? Um, there were a number of problems. One, some people didn't believe X.25, others didn't believe packet switching, and others didn't believe us. I mean, if we look at myself, for example, my background was in uh, theoretical computer science. Um, what I had done prior, prior to that was the email system at Wisconsin. I had worked on that, but I didn't really have uh, engineering networking experience. And we didn't, the team did was a little bit light in that area. So we were attacked for that but we were also attacked both for and against the X.25 stuff. Um, any case, I think the, the, the uh, reviews were such that NSF couldn't fund it. So, but on the other hand, NSF wanted to fund the network uh, for reasons I can explain later. And so we went uh, back to the drawing boards and we, had, we ended up having another meeting. Oh, NSF funded a study. So we did a study of all the computer science departments and overwhelmingly they indicated a revolutionary concept that they would be willing to pay for a network. Remember in 1979, no, no researcher actually paid for use of the ARPANET. DARPA paid, DOE paid, they were all, right? And, and most of the ARPANET was just paid directly by DARPA. And so researchers were not forced to uh, make a decision. Do I pay for use of the network for my grant or do I pay for a graduate assistant? 
Um, and in fact, the whole idea of whether the question of whether a researcher would pay for networking was totally unknown at that point. You know, people were spec would speculate either way. Again, 1979 is different than 2019, and it's very hard for people to understand the way the world was. So we, we did a study of computer science departments, and we found that people were willing to put some money in. Okay, we, re, we got together again, and we planned a second meeting. We had a meeting of, in, in Oakland at the Claremont Hotel, and uh, Bob, um, not Bob, Ben Cerf came. We had about uh, 20 people plus Vint came, and Vint came with a really interesting offer. He said, use the internet protocols and DARPA will work with you. And that was a real breakthrough because uh, up to then, we were doing something that was very different than what DARPA would like us to do. So we right, had- with the, with the X25, because the X25 was, yeah. Yeah, the OSI stuff. Right. Anyway, um, and, and again, um, well, you have to read the book for all the details, but uh, it, it actually turns out in 1980, probably OSI had more gravitas than internet in the world. You know, there were, there were whole huge, large number of companies that's not companies, countries that supported um, the use of OSI as opposed to internet. Okay. So, we got to, we, and also at that meeting, um, Dave Farber came. And uh, Dave had actually been one of the reviewers on the first proposal. I'm not sure exactly what he write, wrote, but we had enough negative reviews, so it was probably one of those. Anyway, uh, so we, uh, we uh, included TCPIP in the proposal. And Dave actually made a very important contribution because he indicated that he and a, a student, Dave Crocker, were working on an email system, MMDF, which would allow forwarding of mail using both um, DARPA protocols, TCP IP, as well as other modalities. So you could run it on top of XL25, you could run it on top of IP. And uh, that added an incredibly important dimension to a proposal. So we submitted the second proposal sometime towards the end of, this was already 1980, I guess uh, maybe fall of 1980. And we were using TCP IP and we were, were Dave had, had brought us the, uh, the email uh, convert, um, component and we submitted the proposal. And once again, the proposals were devastate, the views were devastatingly negative. Okay, so what did the reviews say? Um, the preponderance of the reviews said TCP IP won't work. Okay, this was, <laughs> this was 1980. Okay, so we were talking about a network that would perhaps expand to 100 to 200 uh, sites. Okay, w one of the reviews said, um, I doubt that uh, TCP IP will scale to that size of a network. Another one of the review comments was the protocols are computationally intensive to the point where I doubt that uh, it will work on, on, on a real network. Now, my conjecture is there were telco people involved with those reviews. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, that sounds like a telco because at that time, of course, the OSI was being pushed by nation states effectively, X25 and that entire series of stuff. And so they were, you know, very, very interested in trying to keep TCPIP from becoming a thing. And in fact, uh, at one point in a year or two later, um, Sandy Fraser, I don't know if you know Sandy. Sandy was the guy at... Uh, at Bell Labs, who headed the computer science uh, division, and uh, he uh, he had done uh, what was it called the Data Kit, which was uh, AT and T's packet switching product. But so he he organized a meeting between the TCP/IP folk and the telco folks, where he hoped to bring people together, see each other's viewpoints, and it largely ended in disarray. This was about 1981 or two that meeting took place. So anyway, so here we were, 19, uh, 1980, we had incredible support from the computer science community. We had incredible support from NSF. DARPA was on board, but we couldn't get reviews that NSF could use to fund a $5 million project. And I should say, part the project, the way we proposed it the second time was, one, we were going to have a portion that would use Telenet with TCP IP. So we were going to build the interface between IP and X.25, which we actually did. Second, there was a, a what we called PhoneNet, which used Dave's software and which allowed people to just come on and transfer messages to and from the ARPANET and other, other sites. Um, and third, we were going to put a host, we were going to get a vac somewhere and allow people just to log in and uh, use email. So it was a pretty straightforward project, but the reviews were not good enough. So for some reason, um, there was pressure on NSF to actually do something. And uh, so the months after that, towards the end of uh, of uh, 19, uh, 1980, um, they worked very hard to answer the questions of the reviewers and to, to put together a plan. Uh, they brought in a guy named Bill Kern, who was a chemist who had done computing work to actually lead the process. He had been at Battelle. And uh, so they worked very hard. Eventually, they got to the point where they were ready to submit it to the National Science Board. Now, I, I, I'll tell you a little anecdote, which uh, we, we, we believe that there was some pressure from on high to actually do something. And NSF was very willing to do it, but we don't know the exact details. But in any case, after a great deal of effort, <clears throat> they were able to put together a package for the National Science Board to approve it. Again, this was a $5 million project. So, and in 19, 1980, $5 million was real money. Okay. Now we don't even count 5 million as being a millionaire. So um, <laughs> anyway, so, so it went to the national science board. They spent about maybe 15 minutes to a half hour on it and approved it. And the only person that knew anything about the area a little bit was a guy named Peter Lax who wrote a very important report on supercomputing, but uh, didn't know much about networking, but he, uh, he apparently was all for it. And based on his word, they actually, they approved it. 
with one caveat, they were only, they were supposed to be involved with management for a couple of years, but then they were supposed to get out and hire somebody to actually help with management because we all recognized that the faculty members involved were, were technical and w could not manage a large scale project. So in January, February of 1981, we had $5 million and uh, then we had to do the project. And uh, what's interesting is this is an example where leadership in a government agency really can, can make something important happen. There's a guy named Kent Curtis who is largely forgotten, but who was head of the computer science section. And he was a physicist by training, and that was very important at NSF because the physicists in those days largely controlled NSF. And uh, he was like a bulldog in wanting this to happen. And uh, there was a great deal of support from DARPA, and uh, it, all, it all came together. So that was, that, that was how CSNet started. I mean, it, none of us actually were confident it would happen until the science board actually approved it because, you know, they were overcoming significant odds because of the reviews. And again, I think a lot of the reviews were from telco folks who just didn't want this stuff to happen. Okay, so we formed we we formed a committee to uh, to mon monitor the project, and it was myself and Dave Farber, who I think you've you've interviewed before. Yep, that's correct. And, and you know, and uh, so Dave Dave was really critical for any number of reasons. I mean, his his perspective on the field was phenomenal, and in fact, among the group of the organizers, he was the one who was most knowledgeable. Um, and then there was Peter Denning, who uh, at one point was president of ACM, but was was a uh, modeling person, chair of the department at Purdue. Uh, there was Tony Hearn, who was from Rand Corporation, who did a um, who who whose uh, scientific uh, achievements were in um, something called Reduce, I believe, which was a symbolic manipulation program. In my case, until about uh, a few years before. Well, let me back up two or three years. Two or three years before that, I was chair of something called SIGACT. Are you familiar with SIGACT? Uh, actually, yes, I am. Yep. The Special Interest Group on Automata and Computability. Right. And, and I had spent my career doing monotic second decidability issues and monotic second order theories of arithmetic, petri nets, computational complexity. Um, the way I learned about networking during the period from when we started doing CSNet to what was funded is I went and spent a year at Berkeley. Actually, it was more like eight months. And it was amazing. You know, it was down the hall from Bill Joy. Um, there was Dave Patterson, Larry Rowe. Um, so I benefited from this incredible activity going on with the development of Berkeley Unix and also, they were very much involved in um, implementing the uh, internet protocols as part of that activity. So that was really important to me the, um, that year. And in fact, uh, you know, Bill, Bill Joy is one of the most amazing people around. Um, I, I think Eric Schmidt was also a graduate student at the time, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So there, it was quite a phenomenal group. 
The other thing that I did was when, when it looked like we were getting funded and just after I made an arrangement with IBM, IBM was sort of a schizophrenic company. It had SNA, it was a little bit for OSI, but it was very much against TCPIP. And the arrangement I made with IBM was they funded a, my group at Wisconsin to implement the internet protocols for their 4300 VM system. And for me, that was very important because that was how I learned how to implement protocols and what, you know, the details. Because prior to that, I really had been a theoretician. Um, so, so the four of us, myself, Hearn, um, Denning, and uh, Farber, made up the, uh, the executive committee and we were doing the project. Purdue was a guy named Doug Comer. Yep. Yep. Doug, Doug was the person responsible for putting uh, IP on top of X.25 with Telenet. Um, and uh, Dave Crocker at, uh, at Delaware, who worked for Dave Farber, was doing the MMDF. I had somebody at Wisconsin who was working on what we call the name server, which was a, w a fancy way of using email where you didn't have to know people's addresses. And uh, who have I left out? Oh, and Tony Hearn was just an advisor mainly on the project. Um, so that's, that's how it got started. And of course, we then had to quickly gear up and make things happen. And uh, the idea was to very quickly acquire, we needed equipment because for the servers, the, uh, the mail forwarders, we needed equipment. We needed one for the public host. And that's where I think we pioneered the really the first application, the first example of cooperation between industry and universities in this kind of project. Um, we actually ended up with significant support from digital equipment, which they didn't give us the vaxes, but they, they gave them to us at a very low price. And that was the beginning of a partnership. And I think that sort of set the model for what we did in CSNet. I don't think there's a good example before 1980 where there was that kind of cooperation between uh, universities and industry. So that we got, we got started pretty quickly. And then sometime into the first year, NSF was looking around. They needed to ha start having a management group. And we, by the way, we grew by leaps and bounds. I mean, we were getting you know, tens of uh, departments joining us, you know, every month or two. And uh, we really couldn't, we, we, the faculty members, were not equipped to handle this. So B NSF did a solicitation and selected BBN as the, uh, as, as the organization to, uh, to actually run the operational stuff. So, for instance, over time, they acquired the mail relays. Um, they also handled the accounting because none of us was in a position to connect money. And they, they actually invented uh, a financial, I won't call it a scam, but a financial... <laughs> Okay, so, so what did we do? We charged university departments anywhere from, I think, two to $5,000 to join. Plus, if they used resources like uh, 
telephone or, or, or Telenet resources, they paid for that. But that wasn't enough. So what we did was we, we started going to companies. And in the interim, I had set up advisory committees. And we had senior executives from a good number of, uh, of, uh, com- of uh, companies. So for instance, Joel Birnbaum, who I think was CTO of, what was he CTO of? Gosh, I want to say HP, was on our advisory committee. We had uh, a guy named Les Vide, who was, uh, again, a senior VP at Intel. We had, uh, um, I forget who we had from DEC, but we had equivalent from DEC. We had, so we had people from a large number of companies and we devised a model to support the network. Basically, companies would pay $25,000 a year and universities would pay two to five. And the person who actually made this work was a woman named uh, Laura Braden. Have you heard of Laura? I think I actually have, yeah. Yes, she was, she, she had been, a, I think, a kindergarten teacher who had worked for some nonprofits and was a temp at BBN when the uh, CSNet project was awarded to BBN. And Dick Edmiston, who was the head of the group, recognized her potential and hired her. And she was responsible for the marketing. And so we actually paid for a very significant part of CSNet, aside from the NSF funding, with money from the universities. Why was that important? When NSF gave us the grant, they required that we be self-sufficient within five years. Again, 1979, 1980, nobody believed that people would actually use their grant money to pay for networking. And so the idea was they were going to pull their money after five years, NSF. Maybe if we had some new project, they would support that. But in the interim, um, we were able to develop this fantastic partnership with all the companies. And uh, there were on the order, I think, 15 or 20 companies that were paying $25,000 a year to participate, uh, plus, the, uh, plus the money that came in from, the, uh, from dues. We also did a little skim on some of the uh, telephone bills. So <laughs> the point is that the point is we readily demonstrated that this could be self-efficient. But I think more important than that, I think was the partnership. Um, nowadays, we take it for granted. We do NSFNet and MCI and IBM work with uh, Michigan. You know, every regional network in the country has had a, a partner. Um, universities have incredible partnerships with all kinds of industry, whether it's Google or Facebook or 3M or whatever. Um, I think as far as a pro- individual project is concerned, CSNet was the first one to demonstrate the importance of this. And let me just divert to a little bit to make a comment about, uh, about other parts of the world. One of the reasons Europe had problems in keeping up was they didn't have the same culture. So in fact, in Europe, so much of the funding came directly for the government from the government that they were not free to 
experiment with as we were, and they were locked into OSI. By the way, I'm talking. Do you have individual? Do you have questions you want to ask? Because I can talk forever. No, no, no. It's fine because I think yeah, a lot of people listening to this probably won't know what um, the OSI. Then they know about the OSI model, but they won't know about the OSI protocol suite. But you know that and X25 is something far. I mean, when I was in Cisco Tech, I worked on X25 circuits. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, you want me to say a few words about OSI? Yeah, go right ahead. Okay, so um, basically there is this OSI model, seven-layer model, which sets out a uh, physical layer, a link, different functionality at different layers of protocols where you might view TCP and IP as representing two of those levels. But at the very top are applications. At the very bottom of the seven layers are the physical bits on the wire. There's also the network protocol somewhere in the middle, which has to do with routing bit uh, packets from one end of the network to the other. There's uh, the uh, what's called the transport layer, which has to do with reliably getting bits between, uh, between uh, processes or applications on the two ends. So in any case, there are these seven layers. And the telephone companies of the world and the standards bodies of the world, when I say telephone companies of the world, the U.S., you can think of, uh, you can think of AT&T because that was the only telephone company for all practical purposes. If you want to think about Europe, uh, Germany, there was Deutsche, Deutsche, Bundepost, Deutsche Bundepost, I think, something like that. So every country had its telephone company. The telephone companies of the world got together with the standard organizations. Probably the standards organization that most people, non-techies see is ANSI. You often will buy something like a plug or like a device and it'll have some, some mention some standard. Or if you're using Wi-Fi in your home, the Wi-Fi standards are set by an organization called the IEEE. Um, but... So there are international standards. Well, the governments of the world, including the United States, but not the Defense Department in the United States, decided that it would be important to have a single standard for the world for data communications. That single standard was supposed to correlate to this thing called the OSI model which is just a, a model that has seven layers, each one of which talks about a certain kind of functionality that a data network protocol is to have. Okay, so the, the telephone companies of the world, the standards bodies of the world got together, together with something called the ITU, International Telecommunications Union, which is the UN agency that coordinates things like international telephone numbers, but is basically the, uh, the coordinating body for uh, telecommunications. And the members are actually countries, but also it, there are parts of the ITU where telephone companies of the world also participate. So all the governments of the world decided they, they were supporting this uh, effort to implement protocols consistent with what was called the OSI model, and they limited funding for their universities and technical people 
two OSI. The one except, well, there were a couple of exceptions. The main exception was the United States um, NSF, National Science Foundation, did not limit in those ways. It was very supportive of the internet protocols and the Dep US Department of Defense also supported the uh, internet protocols. Um, in most of the countries of the world, that was not possible because the governments maintained a very tight uh, control of what was done at the, uh, at the universities. So that's a whole other story of what happened with OSI. Um, I should say one of the things that uh, is important to keep in mind is that that was very important to the United States. We benefit, in the United States, we benefited greatly by the fact that the uh, other countries of the world went down a rat hole of waiting for standards that never to be implemented that never implemented. And what I tell people is just how many Cisco's can you name that are not U.S. companies? And in fact, to a great extent, the reason the United States got a really huge lead in uh, economic areas related to the Internet was the intransigeness of other governments regarding uh, the Internet. Um, the internet won in the end because it was technically superior and because the other guys failed to deliver. But in the interim, we developed incredible expertise in the United States and companies were formed that uh, to a great extent own the market globally. So that's just, that's as a non-economist with no knowledge of things, that's my, my take on what happened. Right. Well, I think a lot of that came out of the concern over who would control the networks and stuff like that. And a lot of um, European nations and et cetera, there was this major concern over the the PTTs, as it were, the Post and Telegraph companies, making sure that they owned, and particularly around billing, um, because there was still this mindset of trunk lines between Stoger switch frames and stuff like that that was going on and how we were going to manage the resources on those trunk lines and, and things of that nature, how would all that get paid for. The concept of the whole concept of packet switching was totally foreign to these people so they just didn't even grok like what are you talking about right there there's another reason that happened i'll just a political another financial reason in european countries the ptts were largely and and in other parts of the world were largely owned by the government the telephone companies and with their voice services they generated huge amounts of money that fed into the government coffers. And so independent of the technical worth or whatever merit of protocol suite, the, uh, the, uh, the PTTs were gonna want to continue to take, keep control because they, the governments wanted to keep the flow of money going. Now, that doesn't explain what happened in the United States. In the United States, the US Commerce Department which is a very powerful organization involved with international trade, international commerce, banking, and its subsidiary, which at that point was called the National Bureau of Standards, today is called NIST, the National Institute of, of Standards and Technology. 
also was very much for OSI. And partly, I believe that was because they were looking towards international trade and they wanted to maintain relations. But the U.S. it largely was the National Science Foundation, the U.S. Department of Defense, and the U.S. Department of Department of Energy aligned against the Commerce Department, the Post Office, the Library of Congress, and some lesser organizations. Uh, for instance, until very late in the game, the person running the uh, Library of Congress would not consider anything other than OSI. So it, we were lucky in the United States because we had countervailing forces, but we were also lucky, as I was saying, because we also had support of the industry. Now, that's not to say that the individual companies all supported the internet. IBM definitely didn't because IBM had its SNA. Digital equipment didn't because the digital equipment had its DECnet. So it was a much more complicated situation. However, getting back to CSNet, CSNet benefited greatly because we were able to convince industry that it was very much in their benefit to support the CSNet effort. Now, also another reason for that is the companies we're talking about was, were very interested in our product, okay? And what's our product? We have two products. The research, maybe that they were less interested in, but our other product is students. And in fact, just as today, if you go back to 1980, early 80s, there was an incredible demand for students. And the companies wanted to wanted access to students, but also the students were learning about TCPIP. And so that's another reason you can point to for the uh, success, for the uh, partnership. There's a third reason, and that is, unlike many places, if you're at a university, what I always tell people is the people, the industry is us. That is, there is a tight coupling between U.S. industry and U.S. universities, because the people at the university, at the at in, in industry, with some exceptions, of course, can't count perhaps Jeff Bezos as an example, but to a great extent, the people in industry and at that time and today are people who came out of U.S. universities with degrees. And so they are, there are tight couplings between professors and people at, uh, in industry. Okay, so that's it about funding. And so we went along and uh, CSNIC grew quite rapidly. I mean, hundred, we, we covered almost all of academic uh, computer science, but then we also got people in industry on, on board on CSNet. So for instance, um, IBM. IBM is an example. We, we went around the corporate culture. IBM was an SNA shop. They were, that was their product, billions of dollars a year. But IBM Research wanted to do internet. Okay? So I worked with a guy named Sten Andler at the San Jose Research Center. And uh, early in the game, um, we set up a, uh, an internet connection to San Jose, I think pretty much violating all of the IBM rules. 
And as a result of that, not only uh, not only them, but but also Yorktown was very involved. Um, the the people at Yorktown wanted to support TCPIP, but and in fact, the early IBM TCPIP products came out from their uh, um, military sis federal systems division because they weren't allowed to make them real real uh, products because of the opposition by the SNA people. Anyway, that's a totally different story. So, okay. So, and then internationally, CSNet also uh, developed relationships all over the world. Um, one of the things I did in the 1980s was start having meetings where we scooped up all the people we could find around the world who were starting to do interesting national networking efforts. And it wasn't all internet. Um, there was a lot of OSI there too. But starting in uh, something like 1982 or three, three, we had, we had a meeting every year where we uh, where we brought together people from all over the world to discuss what they were doing in their countries, and uh, it was very interesting because you had people from Finland who were totally free of government obstruction because they had had deregulation of te telecom. And then you had people from uh, the UK, um, from uh, Rutherford Labs, who were totally into OSI. And we used to have these incredible shouting matches where, <laughs> because it was really emotional. I mean, if you have think about a spectrum, um, Germany and the UK were in one end. And it's interesting that the UK was supporting OSI despite, this, despite the fact that they had Peter Kirstein at University College, who was one of the internet pioneers, who had an early SatNet link from the ARPANET. Um, but anyway, so we had these meetings, and uh, over time, we proselytized, we brought the software. So, for example, uh, we provided uh, John Murai with uh, CSNet software early in the game and helped him to connect to the United States, to the CSNet. We did similarly with people in Israel, um, with people in, uh, in, in uh, let's see, Norway, uh, Sweden, and various other countries. So we were not only developing the network in the United States, promoting TCPIP as well as having the cheaper the cheaper alternative for schools that could only afford email but we were also proselytizing around the world now we in the end i think got just about every single um, computer science department that had a uh, well even ones that didn't have a research component several hundred as well as a significant fraction of industry and uh, it really in my mind it really laid the groundwork for the next stage so about 1983 or 4 I began talking to people at NSF and Dave, Dave and I actually and a guy named Frank Coe about what would come next and we started talking about a project called ScienceNet um, it ended up that ScienceNet didn't work as a name because there was a company that had trademarked it. But um, we were we 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 helped lay the framework for what NSF later did, 
And in fact, uh, Dennis Jennings, who initially headed the NSFNet project, um, was recruited by myself and Ira Fuchs, the guy who did BitNet, at a meeting in Paris that was one of my annual network meetings. Um, so Dennis came to the United States. Have you interviewed Dennis? No, I actually haven't. We'll, we'll put him on the list as well. Kind of, kind of an interesting guy. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we actually brought him to the U.S. to interview for both uh, the uh, director of, uh, for, for um, CS, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, CSNet, as well as for, no, I'm saying that wrong. No, it was, it was CSNet or, um, and then they grabbed him to go talk about the NSFNet. And the interesting anecdote you can ask uh, Dennis about is he was only allowed to do it because his, I think his mother or father was born in uh, the UK. He was an Irish citizen and uh, government, US government had a rule that you couldn't hire non-NATO Europeans. So because he had a parent that was from, uh, from England, he couldn't <laughs> work for NSF. Um, so we, we started promoting this notion of a science net. At the same time, NSF was talking about its supercomputer centers. Um, and it's interesting, at one point, one of the people whispered to me through that uh, what they really wanted to do with NSF was, uh, was, was fund the network and not the supercomputer centers, but nobody ever said that publicly. In any case, I was on a committee. They established a committee to help with the uh, supercomputer program. They were going to put five supercomputers around the U.S., and they were trying to figure out what kind of a network to use. Now, remember, this is 1984, Okay, so we've already got the internet going on the ARPANET. We've got CSNet going. We've got companies willing to be involved with internet protocols. Everything is looking really good. And NSF then has these five supercomputer centers, and there's incredible opposition to using the internet. Okay, there's, there was a guy at the San Diego Supercomputer Center, one of the main supercomputer centers, that wanted to use something called MFE-Net. Have you heard of this MFE-Net? Uh, no, actually, that's one I've not heard of before. Magnetic fusion, some energy network that was done at Lawrence Berkeley, at Lawrence Livermore Labs. And when I asked him for a protocol specification, he said it's all specified in the code. So there was, there was no spec. But they, he was for that. The people at... Uh, at uh, Princeton, who were going to have a supercomputer center, wanted DECnet. Um, Larry Smarr at uh, at, at uh, the uh, in in Illinois in, in at University of Illinois wanted internet, but it was there was no consensus as to what kind of a network it would be. So I went. I was on a uh, a subcommittee of that supercomputer committee. And I remember going to the meeting, and what swung it was there was a guy named Ken Wilson, who you probably have not heard of, but who won a Nobel Prize in physics from Cornell. And he was on this committee, and he, he banged the table, and he said, this is going to be internet or nothing. And we, had, <laughs> we also had the... Uh, I actually like that slogan, internet or nothing. Internet I like that too. Nothing. And the reason he was so for it 
His wife was a woman named Allison Brown, who was, I think, the at that point, the head or second in command, charge of NISERNet, which was the uh, NSFNet regional network in New York State. And the reason they were so adamant about it is the idea was internet would work, run on everything. All of these other protocols had limitations. Um, OSI, frankly, never really ran on almost anything, but it did. There were some applications, but it was very limited. And uh, DECnet was from a company. Um, what else was there? Uh, MFE was this funny thing that ran uh, MFE net where it was documented by the actual machine language code. So Ken, Ken had talked to his wife and was very adamant about it. And so uh, as a result, the, the committee wrote a strong report. And I believe this was in 83 or 84 recommending that uh, the protocol for the NSF net, for the network connecting the supercomputer centers be TCP IP. Uh, the second thing that happened is Dennis Jennings, who we had recruited from uh, Ireland. Okay, he was the head of the Computer Center University of Ireland and also one of the founders of EARN, which was the European equivalent of BitNet. Um, Dennis Jennings very firmly indicated that NSF approved will only approve of the network being TCP IP. But it is interesting that even in 84, it was iffy. You had, we had to fight. A second data point I'll give you is in, um, I believe, 1987 or 88, um, Gordon Bell convened a workshop to look at the network. And I was chair of uh, one of the committees that was basically Internet Futures. And I went back and looked at the report a couple of days ago. And there's a uh, paragraph there that says, we will use Internet until OSI is ready. So the, the notion that Internet was the obvious winner, that it was, there was no real competition, et cetera, et cetera, is all history written by the victors, um, as opposed to uh, to real fact? Yeah, um, I, I remember actually being in the U.S. Air Force and there being this huge argument over um, everything has to support OSI if we're going to use it because everyone's going to OSI before it's over with, and that was always what was said. Right, and what year was that? Oh, must have been. Um, 19 mid 1990s late early 1990s oh early 90s yeah in fact uh europe did not capitulate until sometime in the 90s um it was actually a network that ibm put together that was the first real breakthrough something called EasyNet. and in fact ibm paid for a uh internet connection from uh cern to cornell to connect to the nsf net in, in the, um, I think about 1989 or 90. So, yeah, but anyway, history, uh, there, there, there have been a lot of myth of, uh, oh, I don't want to say fake news. Never mind. Forget I did. Yeah, well, mythological concepts that, that this, yeah. this is what's happened, right? That this, so, that, 
it was all certain and everything else, right? So anyway, then what happened was, okay, so the then NSF needed a high-speed network to connect the supercomputer centers. They did a 56-kilobit one. Then they put a tender out for a T1, 1.5 megabits per second one. IBM, MCI, and the University of Michigan won that tender. And uh, at that point, which was probably about 1987, 80, about 88, it was clear that there was no real future for CSNet because at that point, regions started forming uh, regional networks using the internet. They started connecting to the NSF net. And so CSNet served the purpose of essentially helping to lay the foundation for all of this later on by keeping, by basically promoting the internet beyond what the uh, Defense Department was doing to the academic community and the industry community. But at the point that NSF did the NSFnet, it no longer was going to be relevant. I should also mention that the mantle of leadership transferred from the Defense Department to NSF already in the early 80s. Because in the early 80s, 1980s, the Defense Department announced that the ARPANET was going to be split into a military version and then a, and a research ARPANET version. And that in the future, internet development in the military was going to be on military-only networks, including classified networks. So already by the early 80s, um, the Defense Department was withdrawing. On the other hand, NSF funded CSNet. CSNet got internet out to the academic community and engaged the industry, and then essentially laid the framework for the supercomputer network using TCP IP. Okay? There were, everything was tied together in all of this. Uh, the people working on CSNet were involved with NSF. The NSF people were involved with the NSFnet people. So it largely happened because of the collaboration between both the, uh, the university folk and the industry folk in the context initially of the need to connect up the supercomputer centers. But I, I'll leave CSNet by just saying it played a central role in bridging the time of the ARPANET, remember ARPANET was going away, and the time of the NSFnet, and as a community builder, it essentially engaged the entire academic community of the United States in that effort, in the networking effort, and also engaged senior executives from almost every important technology com company in the U.S. So anyway, that's CSNet.